ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of That's Entertaining for September 2017. Joining me is none other than the representatives, the sole proprietors, the founders of the Fortress of Nerditude. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, please, Spencer Stapleton and Steve Madura? Madura? <laughs> that usually is the intonation that, that happens when, when my name is said. Madura? Is that, that's, it's a Polish thing. Ah, I see. Yes, that is correct pronunciation. Thank you. I like the idea that we're the founding fathers. <sighs> no, please, thank you. No, please, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, founding. I've never been a founder of anything. I haven't even found my car keys last night. It was, it's, it's crazy. That's, uh, I put, I'm going to put that on my, my business card, I think. You should put founder yeah. slash proprietor slash guy that actually did find his keys last night. Right. Yeah, that nice. works. Well, Nathan, <laughs> thanks for having us on. We've been, I know you and I have talked, uh, feels like for a few months now to try to make this happen. And I'm glad we finally worked it out. Yeah, it uh, it takes some time, especially when I move to my monthly format uh, to try to line people up. Because if one month doesn't work, then the next doesn't work. Then, you know, it takes a while for the things to line up. But it's, I'm glad it finally did. So for the listeners who may not be familiar, why don't you guys... Uh, describe the Fortress of Nerditude with all its draperies and all the tapestries. Uh, I need to know all the details. Okay. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of pomp, a lot of circumstance. Go for yes, it. yes. So the Fortress of Nerditude was born out of the idea that we all have these things that we're interested in, right? Nerd, pop culture. And when you were kids or teenagers, you used to hang around with your friends and you used to talk about a lot of this sort of things, like hanging out in your friend's basement, right? You could have a conversation about phasers on Star Trek for a few hours and realize it's the middle of the night. And I realized uh, a while back that I just wasn't having those type of conversations anymore where I could talk about nerd and pop culture and geeky stuff. And Steve and I sat down and decided that we wanted to have that back in our life more. And so every week we get together, we talk about our life, kind of what's going on. We talk about the news in and around the galaxy around us. And then we typically just talk about something. Uh, it can be something as simple as stunt men and women in in movies, or we can talk about things like uh, Comic Con or movies. We've done move. We do a movie review uh, once a month, and we basically just have a good time. And if you listen to the podcast, you can tell that Steve and I have known each other for thirty plus years now. Because we just have a very natural way of, you know, interrupting each other and having a good time. That's right. We oh shucks, I tried to. Yeah, dance. nice try. <laughs> <laughs> I see what uh, you yeah, did so, there. Yeah, see what you did there. Yeah. So yeah, we we uh, it's it's always uh, kind of a mixed bag of of topics. It it uh, sometimes it, it's in more of the the nerdish type of uh, of topics, and other times we talk about just our lives as husbands and fathers. We're both uh, uh, both married, both have kids, and. Um, yeah, it's just a good time, and and really, for me, it's it's been a great excuse. I'll call it an excuse, but it's it's uh, you know more than that. Um, but but a chance to talk to, to get away uh, from his kids. That's right, oh, exactly. Sorry, I lock the door. Daddy, come out. We know you're down there. We can hear you breathing. <laughs> um, so uh, no, but it's uh, it's a great time just to get together with my best friend and just talk for an hour or so. And and uh, um, we we found that you know six months went by and we're like we haven't talked at all. That's not right. So yeah. Uh, 
you know, life gets busy and we wanted to make sure that we had something on the, on the calendar every week. So it's been, uh, it's been a great thing. It's been, you know, about almost a year, uh, almost a year in December. So yeah, beginning of December will be a year for us. Nice. Congratulations early on the anniversary. Thank- I'm assuming you're going to make it there. So <laughs> I'm hoping so. It's on the rocks right now. We're going to counseling. That's uh, a little dicey. Yeah. That, that is a good idea because you never know, you know, just got to keep the solid <laughs> foundation right there. You know what I mean? We do date nights. We keep the love alive. Good, good. Uh, so speaking of date nights that may be, you know, entertained by different things on those times, uh, Spencer, what have you been entertained by, like in the past, let's say, a few months? What has stood out to you for TV shows, movies, or games that have entertained you? Okay, so, like, I, I watch and I see a lot of things, and I play video games and kind of all over the map. Um, during the summertime, though, because we're just kind of coming off the summertime, my wife and I get really heavily into America's Got Talent. Um, it's a, just a fun show for us because it, it highlights a lot of different things that people do. It's not just a singing show. It's not just a dancing show. Um, like you've got magicians and acrobats and, you know, people that spin plates on, you know, their head and you got dog acts and all sorts of weird stuff and wild, crazy stuff. And, uh, we've been doing, we've been watched that pretty much all summer long. And that was kind of a staple of our summer. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, video games, obviously, um, I'm playing destiny two right now and that's just consuming my time. Um, but that's really been it lately. I've been in the Marvel, uh, Netflix world. I'm just about done with iron fist. Hmm. And then I get the old team up of the defenders, which I've been trying to push through to get to. So pushing through nice. is the right term to use. On, on iron <laughs> fist. I agree. It's so I had high expectations of daredevil and I think that the daredevil season one was a little rocky for me, but season two was excellent. And I was a lot more engaged. Um, Jessica Jones season one, I really found engaging and I was interested in Luke cage. Um, it was, it was kind of a love hate relationship. I really loved parts of it. I kind of hated other parts mm-hmm. and it got a little slow for me. Iron fist has been a really just kind of a, it's there and I'm watching it because I want to know this character type of show, but I feel like, and I granted, I haven't finished it. I think I have the finale to go uh, watch later tonight. Um, I feel like it's just, there's something lacking with it. And I don't know if it's relatability to the character or if the show just doesn't seem like there's much heart to it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just something missing. And I'm hoping that, that that will improve and the character will be better for me in the defenders. The thing that's missing is Danny's charisma. Yes. <laughs> yes. He's, he's not a very uh, charismatic character. That is true. <laughs> well, hopefully you enjoy your ride, but you know, for me, you can go back and listen to the old episodes of where we covered those, but <laughs> not so much on my part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, I, you know, I don't blame you. I don't know if I ever told you, but I actually, my wife and I went to a taping, going back to your earlier comment, uh, of America's Got Talent. It came to Chicago, oh, five, six years ago. And uh, so we went to a taping, thought it'd be really fun, waited in line for a while. It was the worst experience of my young life. I mean, it was like five hours of taping. Wait, 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 wait. Worse than Cabin Boy? (laughs) Okay, okay. Chris Elliott. 
You just saying. You got the crown there. <laughs> Fish stick kitties. Yeah. Um, but, but like Howie Mandel actually got like really upset and he started like not yelling at the crowd, but he's like, be quiet. Be and and every, it was getting hot in there because the the AV, HVAC broke down and it was like literally five hours of taping. It was, whoo. Wow. Anyway, yeah, yeah. But uh, so you're saying that they edit it very well for television, right? Exactly. It's it's twelve hours, you know, narrowed down to forty five minutes. So, but um, but yeah, I was I was thinking, you know, kind of what uh, what I've been up to. I actually kind of went retro. So we have, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about our on our podcast, Nathan. Um, you know, some of the the NES Classic and the SNES Classic that are coming out, and. A week or so ago, my boys, I've got uh, four kids, two uh, um, two boys and then two girls, and my boys, 11 and 8, um, or 9, uh, dusted off my old Xbox and brought it out. And so we spent a, kind of a Saturday afternoon going through some of my old Xbox titles, and they are in love with Burnout 3. Oh, and so, takedown. So good. Yeah. Takedowns, exactly. So my wife yep. even got into it, so we're just rocking it. And, and so we've uh, probably the last seven days we've been playing that, you know, every other day and uh, having a great time with just Steve. You know, re- remind me, where did you get that Xbox? Oh, you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> Rub my nose in it. It was actually a wedding gift from uh, the uh, my co-conspirator, co-founder. Um, best wedding gift ever. Better than a Cuisinart, better than a Crock-Pot. Mm-hmm. I so. aim to please. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, a, a wedding gift from Spencer. So, well, that's cool. So, do you also have? Tell me, you have Knights of the Old Republic on your original Xbox still? I don't. I don't. <sighs> oh, I love that game. That I is love- a great game, though. That is a great game. Whenever I think of the original Xbox era, I mean, Knights obviously pops out in my mind. Burnout's fantastic. Uh, the other great games that come to mind for me that I played a lot on that system: Jedi Outcast, Clone Wars. Um, uh-huh. All the Star Wars stuff, pretty much. <laughs> I was big into I was big into Splinter Cell. I loved that game. Yes, um, obviously Cell the original great. Halo was you know groundbreaking. Um, Crimson Skies. Oh, oh yeah, oldie bit of goodie. Oh, yeah, so good. Man, that's that's a franchise that Microsoft just needs to bring back. You know what I mean? I yeah. that, true that. Agreed. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off though. So obviously, Burnout on original Xbox, but what else? Um, my wife and I have been going through, uh, kind of some old, um, not old, I want to say old, but, uh, we, we, we aren't, we aren't early adopters, I guess. And so, uh, sometimes we'll, uh, speaking of date nights, go through and, and just go through some like Oscar nod movies. So, um, you know, life of Pi we watched a few weeks ago, um, uh, La La Land. Uh, so we've just kind of been going through some some old movies that we thought, well, if the Academy thought that it was good enough for them, then it might be good enough for the Maduras. And so, um, yeah, just going through some of those. And uh, other than that, you know, unfortunately, uh, the the other part of my life, which is the less than entertaining part, uh, the war part, has been extremely busy. So my um, my consumption has been a little limited as of late. Oh, well, that's no good. But I do have to ask a right? question. With the the movies that you're watching, the Academy nods, do you find yourself agreeing with the Academy? Like, oh, this is a good film. This is deserving of an award. Or do you yeah. find yourself like, what? What? No. <laughs> That's a great question, actually. I, I think we are divided. So I, you know, I, I tend to, I, I think I tend to agree with the Academy. My wife, at the end of Life of Pi, she was like, what was that? She's like, what? <laughs> 
what was what was that? Was it which story was true? What was that? You know, and then uh, we watched Sully, which I know is not an I don't think an Oscar nod, but uh, like it's that Tom one. Hanks. Um, Anything like it with Tom Hanks, you never know. Yeah, exactly. Anything Tom Hanks from Big to Sully and whatever. Um, but and I really like La La Land. But I'm I'm you know Spencer and I actually have our roots in uh, in Broadway. We uh, we both used to be in musicals and and uh, plays back in high school uh, together actually. And uh, so I really enjoyed kind of the 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 classic glam of Hollywood that the La La Land had. And I, um, while my wife didn't like the ending, I really enjoyed the ending and the subtle nod at the end when she and her husband came into the, came into the bar and he's playing. I, I, I enjoyed that movie a lot. So I tend to agree with the Academy. Interesting. See, I find yeah. myself agreeing to an extent, but an extent. the ones that win, I'm never really on board with. It's just, the ones that are nominated. Yeah. I think that's a good selection a lot of times, but when it comes to the actual winners of the Oscars, a lot of times I disagree. <laughs> I, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I find myself kind of in the same boat you are, Nathan. Like a lot of times I, I, get, I look at the, the list and I remember they expanded from five to ten. So I'll say, OK, eight out of these ten deserve to be there. I, I get that. Maybe a few of them just kind of feel like they're rounding out to get to an even ten. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically I have a few favorites that I really enjoyed or that I thought offered something new and different, a unique perspective, uh, for the year. And those typically aren't the ones that get selected. It's always like the other one, like the one I didn't see or the one I like didn't care for that much. But like, typically though, if I look back, like the history of the, you know, the best picture award winners, like there's some really, really like big movies, um, that are on that list. Mm-hmm. I mean, just stuff that's like high, high, high quality. I feel like it's only been maybe in the last maybe 10, 15 years that I've started to have a more of a dissension with, you know, who I think they choose for the, the award winner versus some of the nominees. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of award winners, the film that we'll be discussing this evening won a few awards, but the best director, but not the best picture. That's unfortunate. So that is a little weird. Yeah. So just a little bit of a, a tease to later Ooh, on the show. That's called foreshadowing, Ooh. folks. <laughs> but before we we go out of this world a little bit, uh, for what I've been entertained by recently, uh, you yes. mentioned it a little bit, Spencer. There's a little independent game uh, came out uh, by a little company. Just a tiny thing. Yeah, yeah, just, you know, Bungie, you know, nobody's never heard of them. They've never made anything no. of, of consequence. Uh, <laughs> but they released a game called Destiny 2. And I have, to this at this point, probably put like 37 hours into it. Um, wow. Are you playing on PlayStation or Xbox? I'm PS4. I skipped Xbox this go-round. Um, the last few years, I've decided that I'm only going to go with one of the big two. And then, like, Nintendo is kind of, you know, the, the little cousin that just doesn't get as much love. Um, I, yeah, I... I left Xbox behind after the 360. I had a 360. I didn't get a PS3 until super late. So when the PS4 came around, it seemed like that was the place where a lot of the exclusives that I wanted to play were at. And so that's where I went. And to be honest, there's not many exclusives. For me, this is just me personally. There's not many exclusives to the Xbox anymore that draw me in. Hmm. So... Interesting. Yeah. So you prefer that PlayStation controller to the Xbox controller? I prefer the Xbox controller, if I'm being honest. But the PS4 controller, though, is as I've like really kind of like slid into that much more than the PS3 controller. 
Um, I, I like it. It's fine. Like I've gotten really used to it, but the, uh, the Xbox, the, the Xbox controller S for my aesthetics, I feel is probably one of the best controllers ever designed. So the original Xbox controller S. Yes. So the, the 360 I, I wasn't bad. It was a, it was a small, like I feel like the 360 has small changes on the on the Xbox controller S. Yeah, it, it wasn't huge. It it does definitely. the The biggest thing and the thing that I think that would per me personally give the like the Xbox 360 the edge over that controller is having the white and black buttons be the RB and LB. I kind of like the bumpers better than the the white and the black buttons. I can totally see that. Um, I tell you which one I hated the most was the Duke. The Duke. And why are they bringing oh, that thing yeah. back? <laughs> um, because people are idiots. I have no clue. I mean, that thing was a massive monstrosity to to hold, and nobody just, liked that uh, thing. Right. No, I, the the moment the controller S came out, I immediately plopped down the money and got rid of the Duke. I sold it. Like I think I gave it away. Well, you know, they, before the S came out, there was the Japanese controller um, that came out just briefly before the S came out. I remember I was working at Best Buy at the time, I think, and this thing came out, and I was like, oh, this is a great design. And then shortly thereafter, they released the S, which was the same kind of thing, except I think the S had a longer cord than the Japanese version. I don't remember the Japanese version, so I, I couldn't speak to that. But I do remember the uh, the cord seemed about the right length it was maybe like six and a half seven feet long mm-hmm. and it had a little I mean, detachable I, thing that i loved too because it, yes. if you people would walk in between you and that and then you know it was it was good yeah i mean i i think though we're, we're kind of missing the point guys i mean i think that the the really the hands down best controller ever was the ness advantage controller as you recall <laughs> the uh the one square square foot by one square foot uh <laughs> Arcade style with the buttons the size of Swatch Watch faces. I don't know about that one? you, but I love oh. my glove. <laughs> you keep your power gloves off her, huh? <laughs> the glove. Fred Savage reference, huh? Yeah. That's right. Um, no, I, I don't know, man. I, I have never, ever loved any of the Sony controllers. I just, they, yeah. They, uh, I, would, I would take an original Nintendo controller over a Sony controller. Any, I just, mm. Wow. Yeah. A visceral response. So, Steve, when are you going to get an Xbox One? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's uh, it's it's out there. You know, I, I, I'm 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 leading my kids down the primrose path, but it's a slow kind of a zero entry pool. So we're uh, we're uh, we're introducing them, you know, slowly to. Uh, they 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 can have uh, somewhat addictive personalities, and so if I ever want to if they if I ever want my boys to see the light of day or you know handlebars of a bike or a baseball bat, I, I gotta be uh, gotta be careful with the uh, the digital heroin. So this is true. <laughs> I, I, I really think the uh, Nintendo Switch needs to be your uh, your way to introduce them into gaming. I think it's a a perfect hybrid for your boys if you don't go with the the NES Mini Classic or the SNES Mini Classic. Right. Well, and, and I think based on some of the games we've talked about, it's it's even the, the even the kind of the caliber and the genre of games seems to be uh, uh, well positioned for for their age group. So yeah, absolutely. 
just waiting for another wedding gift, Spence. You know, we're renewing our vows in a, in a number of years. Yeah, it's like <laughs> you got to get married again, and uh, I'm not going to count it if you remarry Carrie. <laughs> right. Oh man. So, honey, I got to divorce you. Spencer's going to give me <laughs> right. that Nintendo Switch. She's <laughs> like, I can go with that. <laughs> so, Spencer, you said that you skipped. You're skipping uh, Xbox One for this generation. Now, do you consider this half step a generation? No, I don't. I will not be getting the Xbox One X or whatever it's called. Um, I It's going to have to be something new for me. Um, I'm not going to get a PS4 Pro or the PS4 Slim. It's going to be when the PS5 comes out or when Xbox comes out with their next generation. Uh, then that's when I will take a look and I will evaluate, reevaluate because uh, I, I, tr- I try to make sure that I reevaluate that I'm not just like resting on my laurels of this is what I enjoy the previous gen- generation. Because uh, like I said, I had an Xbox 360 and I, and I played the mess out of that and I wasn't a PS3 guy. Um, I ended up getting one kind of at the tail end just for the Blu-ray player, essentially. Mm. Um, and I think I played maybe maybe like three or four games on that on my PS3. It was Lego Lord of the Rings. I played on it. I played through, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think here, uh, Bioshock Infinite, I played on it. And then I think I played the first Uncharted game on it. And that was pretty much it. It was mainly a Blu-ray player because I was all in on the Xbox 360. So Um, if you plan on upgrading your TV, then possibly a 4K Blu-ray player in the S? Um. Uh, probably not. <laughs> the The simple fact is that, like, we don't watch uh, as much TV, like, as like network TV anymore. It's all like Netflix and streaming stuff. And I just I don't see for me the the need really to upgrade yet. Um, I used to be the new guy out of the box. You know, I've got to be at the bleeding edge of technology. And now. As costs are rising, my kids are growing a little older, and they're needing shoes and clothes more frequently. Uh, they can uh, wrap their feet in gauze. It's okay. I Duct tape. Get, get a burlap bag. <laughs> yeah. Costs, they are rising. But, you know, yeah. you never know. In the next year and a half or so, if you find yourself looking for a 4K TV or something... It might be a consideration. You, let me yeah. just ask you this. It wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. No, absolutely not. Um, I will definitely not rule it out. But at this moment at, in time, if I'm looking at it objectively, it's just not a, it's not a need for me or not even a real strong want. But that's not to say that, you know, like you said, you know, a year from now, 18 months from now, Something happens, I need to upgrade my TV, the costs are down, I can get a 4K TV at a reasonable price. Then I went, well, you know, if I really want to get the most out of it, then I could go that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like I should get uh, a check from Microsoft right now. Right? (laughs) Yeah, right? I've been trying to sell some guys on some Xboxes. (laughs) Um, Anyway, we got on a wild tangent there. It's in the mail. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Thanks, Phil. Um, so we went on a little bit of a wild tangent there. The other thing that I wanted to bring out for my entertaining section was I finally caught up on Gotham. Have you guys watched Gotham? Uh, not yet. It's on no. my list. My my list, though, is big. It's really big. And yeah. so 
it's I, I and the other thing is is I try to watch things that my wife wants to watch as well because I feel like, you know, with work and then come home and pick up the kids from daycare and then spend time with the kids and then, you know, uh, service and, you know, I'm an assistant scoutmaster uh, in our local co- uh, church congregation, like spending time doing that. Uh, I'm in a motorcycle club, so I've spent time doing that. Like my my chance to watch things isn't as great as it used to be. So I always try to make sure if I am watching something that I always give my wife the first opportunity to say, hey, let's watch something together. And then we uh, will find something we're interested in and watch it. And then if she says, hey, I really want to do X, Y, Z on my own and watch something you're not interested in, then that's when I default to watching something that I want to watch. Aha. That is a good way to split the difference, good sir. Not a good husband, man. That's know, a good right? husband. Watching reruns of Dawson Creek. Good job, man. <laughs> yeah. No, I do have boundaries, Steve. <laughs> I, I will draw the line somewhere. Dawson's Creek isn't that line, but I mean, you know, <laughs> it's somewhere. Right. Dawson's Creek, you know, Melrose Place, somewhere around there. Right. Yeah. But uh, Gilmore and, Girls. <laughs> Gilmore Girls. Um, I did want to say though, for those who are curious about Gotham. In my summation, I would say that the ending of season three, which is now on Netflix, uh, validates the entire experience to this point for sure. Um, really? It is. It has now become what I've wanted it always to be. <laughs> a, sh- a show about Batman? I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but it has become let me, let me what ask I want the- it to be. Was it was it a slow start? You know, was it was it uh, you have to get you know five episodes into to feel like okay, I'm gonna invest time and, and effort into this, or was it right off the bat that you loved it from season one? Yeah, um, it was a it was one of those things where have you played the Batman Telltale game? No. Okay. I'm halfway through it. They kind of do their own thing, right? You know, yeah. they they make their own story. It's not really beholden to any of the. Uh, preconceived notions you would have going in. That's the same type of mentality you have to take in going into Gotham. So at at first, I didn't necessarily have that mentality, but it kind of has changed over time. I've been more accepting of the alternate timelines and storylines and things like that because, hey, they're going to do it with the movies. Why not do it with the uh, TV show? TV shows, yep. But uh, it was a little bit of a slow start for me, but the characters have really developed really cool like their developments uh arcs over the seasons and it's definitely a slow burn but it's it's one of those things where it's it's definitely got that burden influence so it's got like that kind of darkerness kind of weirdness to it and they definitely have that like 1989 batman a batman returns vibe that runs through this thing okay let me let me ask you this nathan have you seen the wire i have not Ooh. That's a that's something you should correct. Um, it's it's, the it's wire, in my list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Um, the Wire for me was an excellent show, but it was kind of that same thing of the slow burn. And so anytime someone says this is kind of a slow burn, I always think of The Wire because it was like the first episode lays down. It just seems like it seems like the story's not going anywhere. They're just kind of building character development, building character development. And then like within like the last two episodes, like everything comes crashing to a head and it's like drama and tension everywhere. And, you know, worlds are colliding. And that was like every one of the five seasons of the wire was like that. And so like you finish season one and you're like, man, okay, now where's it going to go? 
and then they go to season two and they start following, you know, some new characters with mixing in some of the old ones, but it starts off slow again and kind of a slow burn up until the end of season two when it all comes to a head. And so I'm, I'm imagining that that's how Gotham has been for you. He just hearing you kind of talk about it. Yeah. And each, each season kind of has that, you know, that, that last arc of the season where it, it all kind of culminates and makes sense and gives you a, a good reason to continue on for next season. So if you ever want to just binge something on, on Netflix in the background, I, I would say Gotham is uh, binge-worthy. Stamp okay. certified binge-worthy. I've got some time tonight. All right. <laughs> there you go. Right now. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's on the I'm second gonna, screen. I'm, I'm going to go on right mute, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and get out of this world a little bit. Gentlemen, please join me for our entertaining thoughts for this month. the extra terrestrial now before when I decided to do this movie I realized that I I didn't actually own this movie which was something that I had to rectify so when I was doing my my looking around finding my research I found that they released a 30th anniversary limited edition uh, boxed set of E.T. and of course you know I gotta have it so I got it (laughs) yeah but uh, they, you know, this little box, nice little uh, holographic movement uh, on the top front of it. So nice packaging on that side. Comes with the remastered uh, original Most in Picture soundtrack, which for me is worth it because I always buy the, the soundtracks. And again, I didn't have the score for E.T., which yeah. is a glaring oh, omission from my collection because score. it is fantastic. It's John Williams. It's, it's, it's the, something that I should have had. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't know why I didn't. So it included that. Also included a a nice little art book and some behind-the-scenes information, kind of just a little book. Uh, it's no bigger than a, a uh, Blu-ray case, but it has some cool materials in it. And, Let of ask, course... Does it have the original, unedited version of so the film? The film is the unedited, re-edited version does that make sense? It's unedited, uh, re-edited. So it is the the version that was enhanced. They put the walkie-talkies in, but then for this, they removed the walkie-talkies and put in the original. Put the guns back in? Yes. Aha. Oh, okay. So this is the definitive edition. Now that you're saying that, I'm probably going to go get it because I have on VHS my original E.T. from when I was a child. And I've seen that movie countless, countless times. And then when it came to DVD, I was like maybe like 2002, 2003, somewhere around there. I went and bought it on on DVD. And, you know, all of a sudden, all these guys are holding onto radios. And I was like, <laughs> why, why are they running? Why are they running from guys with radios? That doesn't make sense at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, wasn't, I wasn't a fan. 
I think what's funny though is with some of these box sets, like you know, they'll make them for different occasions, for you know, different anniversaries of movies or or holidays or whatever. And sometimes they get crazy with some of like the cross marketing they get or the the whatever. And and I was surprised that that you didn't say. And when I opened the box, there was also a little red, uh, you know, uh, red hooded sweatshirt and a bicycle with a, a basket in the front. I'm like, dang, they chalking those things full. <laughs> well, yeah. funny you should mention that. <laughs> <laughs> oh really? It came with a bike? So it didn't come with a bike. Uh, the packaging would have been a little too big, but it did come with because I bought it from from Best Buy and they had a promotion going on where if you buy ET, you also get a bag of Reese's pieces. <laughs> nice, oh, nice. Oh, M&Ms is still fuming about it. <laughs> and uh, of course, I still have my bag of Reese's here. Haven't opened it yet. That that is awesome. That <laughs> is awesome. So for the actual film itself, like I said, it was the, this is what I would call the definitive edition of this. It's, it looks fantastic. It's got the, it doesn't have the Lucas edits. I'm going to call it that. It doesn't have the Lucas edits. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it also includes the 4K, the Blu-ray, and the digital HD, uh, which wow. I actually gave away the digital HD today in, uh, in advance of this recording so people can get hyped about E.T. Because this is the so- 35th anniversary. Was the digital HD version, was it through, like, iTunes or, like, a, a digital download version? Or was it through the, um, oh, what's the name of that service? Um, I can't think of it. It's purple. It's, like, Vuvo or... It's redeemable know? in iTunes after you authenticate it with something okay. else. Yeah, with the code. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's that's how that works. Nice. So, but I did want to just give a shout out to to this collection because it is the 35th anniversary. That's why I wanted to go with E.T. Because uh, it was 35 years ago this month, I believe, that it came wow. out. Which is... That's crazy. It's Yeah, it's crazy to think about, right? 1983 and Star Wars had just finished the year before. And you had Indiana Jones uh, in the, on the same horizon as this. Had E.T. coming out. Steven Spielberg was in his heyday. John Williams was... Dude, this was my childhood right here. Right. This is like... (laughs) So this this would have been... um, It would have been released in, what, 1982? The film itself came out in 1980... I think think I'm looking right here. June 11th, 1982 is the release date of the U.S. So you got to think that's... Right before Return of the Jedi, it's kind of between Empire and, and Jedi. Um, yeah, that's like a perfect time for for this type of a movie to come out. Mm-hmm. So, since we've already started the discussion about Star Wars a little bit, let, let's veer off from our our main discussion. And I have a question for you guys. Let's 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 talk this out. Let's let's get a canon answer right now. Sure, sure. Is the ET universe? In the Star Wars universe. Uh, uh, so the answer is no. Um, in in my in my opinion, the answer is no. They're completely separate. Um, however, because George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are such friends, matter of fact, I, I know some of the story when when E.T. was released. Uh, George Lucas took out a full page ad and I, I believe the LA title variety, you know, I think he took out a full page ad in variety and had a bunch of artwork drawn up with all the star Wars characters, C3PO, R2D2, Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, everyone. 
basically congratulating um, Steven Spielberg on E.T., saying that it was one of the best movies he'd ever seen. And then, of course, when Return of the Jedi came out, they had, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg put out something, you know, saying da 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 um, You know, he's an amazing, amazing movie, great, blah, 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 we're all friends. So then I know that they put the E.T., the E.T. Uh, aliens in, what was it, uh, episode one, yes. The Phantom Menace, and and they were in there. I just think that all of this back and forth and showing them is just a nod to the friendship that those two directors have and a mutual respect. I mean, obviously, they co-collaborated on the Indiana Jones films. Right. Um, but here's the thing, and I'll tell you why I think this is not part of the same universe. E.T. is set in kind of at that time, like the early 80s, in the current time frame. And we're seeing these aliens. Star Wars is set a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So I'm going to say that they're different and separate. That's my belief. Ditto. Uh, yeah, no, I... I uh... <laughs> I'm just wondering where a second start of the right straight on time morning comes in. But, uh, but yeah, I, I've, I've never thought about that, Nathan. And, uh, I would, I would, I would have to say that, uh, yeah, they, they probably are, are separate and distinct. Um, but I bet, uh, I bet ET would be one heck of a pod racer. Let me tell you that much. <laughs> I don't know. He seems a little slow. Okay. Okay. Way to judge. You know, we don't call them slow. We no, no, them no. I mean, yeah, no, I'm reactionary. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We, we call them special needs aliens. Where he was drunk, Nathan, during the scene. He this was drunk. This is true. But so here's my thought. I get your valid points, but uh, I mean, he, they they were in episode one, and here's I think the ship that was, you know, this this ship here that we have in ET. Is like you know uh, Star Trek Voyager, which gets shot out way far out in the the you know galaxies away, and they got to find a way to get back. That's the ship they're trying to figure out. How do we get back home? Well, let's explore these new worlds as we're out here. And there was a time warp. <laughs> and there's a time warp. <laughs> Here's the real problem: is that you're using Star Wars Episode One to validate your point. So. Well. You know, it's, but here's yeah. another thing. Tentative when, at best. When E.T. saw that guy, draw, or that kid, walking his Yoda, he said, home. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Nice. Touche. Once home again, team point. Once again, I think it's just a, a tip of the cap, a, a nod, a wink to Lucas. Mm. That's all. You know, here's, here's what it really is. I think that the close encounters of the third kind and <laughs> E.T. were in the same. That was like next door neighbors. It was like you know, happen in the neighboring city. Mm-hmm. I could see that a little easier, in my opinion. But I think the, the, the spaceships actually look very similar in the, in the two. So I can see that. Anyway, yeah. let's let's get in <laughs> to the discussion at hand uh, of E.T., the extraterrestrial. And to start this off, I just want to think one thing that was just I watched this twice a day and it was super evident on both viewings was the sound design in this movie is fantastic. And, ben Burt, right? Uh, actually, give me one second. I can tell you for sure. That was... Sound mixing was Robert Kinson. Oh, sound editing was Ben Burt. So yeah. the sound design, I kind of consider both of those kind of together. And I don't know which one this would really fall in, but the key chains. that the, So that main 
man character that's not the mom. Obviously, the other adult in this movie that you actually see is Grace. <laughs> Uh, he's characterized mainly by that that key noise the entire time. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, you never really see his face until towards the end of the movie, which I think is interesting. Um, you know, as another aside, but it was really cool to see how they would every time that person was on screen, you'd have that little bit of a a, a key clink noise. You know what I mean? And yeah. it really it made sense to me to as a because if you're a kid trying to figure out who all these people are you may not realize who's who but if that sound is there you're going to re- remember that sound and then that sound becomes kind of terrifying in its own right even though it's not a terrifying sound so really cool way uh, to play with that audio so this reminds me of jaws because you don't see the shark until the very end and every time you do see just a little bit of it there's a distinct two note bum 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 that gets played throughout the the score there Mm -hmm. and it's it's those the two are so similar to me in a way because it's you don't see the full the full villain or the bad guy you know and it's a distinctive noise or a distinctive piece of music uh, every time that character is on screen Uh, it's really for me it's a really good way to build suspense and a good storytelling uh, technique that's used Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's one of those where in movies these days, a lot of times you don't see it, but you definitely, as you, if you go back into the seventies and eighties, you see it a lot. You see those little motifs. nuance. Yeah. Yep. And, 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 and don't you gotta miss that though? Yeah. I, I miss that. You know, we, we we my wife and I watched Jaws maybe two years ago, and I was amazed at how. Um, on the edge of the seat, I uh, was, you know, if, for, for it being such an old movie, there's there's the scene where, you know, I'm not sure which character, but they're they're diving down. There's a ship that's been damaged. There's a hole in the bow of the ship or the hull of the ship, and so they're about to see, and and then the I think it's like a, a head pops out or, or some body pops out basically, and that moment made both my wife and I jump, and I think she even spilled a drink that she had. I mean, it was that in intense and i was like that was like a, a power that the the director and the you know just wielded that i just don't feel like are in today's movies i don't know i just mm-hmm. it's missing some of that subtlety where yeah you didn't see jaws until the end or you didn't see the 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 alien or the villain or whatever so um i miss that mm-hmm. yeah what you find today is a lot more reliance on cg to, to do the job right or to right. exactly it's just one of those things where it's like a lost art, like you said, because you had directors back here, Spielberg, you know, who was instrumental in the way that he directed. And like you said, he wielded that power such with such precision that it was a it was a surprise. It was a jolt. It was a joy. Whatever it was, it, it elicited that reaction from you. And it was moving, which is why you call them movies. Right. Oh, I like what you did there. And I got I got to tell you this. I mean, this is a little bit down a rabbit trail here, but Steve and I used to make movies when we were in high school. Like we would come up with these ideas, these like little plots or these little just goofy things, and we would go and film it. And usually, I had Steve in front of the camera and I was behind the camera. 
partially because I could get Steve to do a lot of dumb stuff and I can catch, <laughs> catch it and not be a part of it. Um, it's a good hair day. That's the reason. But the, the thing was, like, I was inspired to do that. And I, for a long time, thought about going to film school to become a director um, because of Steven Spielberg. Because, I A, I admired his work so much and I loved everything that he had done up to that point. Um and also I knew that he started at a young age making home movies and like, you know, storyboarding stuff and, and going out and doing that. And he'd been a boy scout and Eagle scout. And I was in scouts at the time, uh, myself. And I really, for, for a number of years, I really considered going into uh, movie direction and doing that, that sort of thing, uh, because of Steven Spielberg. Cause I just had such a huge, um, wealth of admiration for him and for his work, and I still do to this day. Mm-hmm. So had you gone down that path and become a director, you, sir, could have been signed to direct a Star Wars movie, whether it would have come out or not, or whether you'd been fired or another thing. <laughs> that's, that's true. I probably would have been fired. Just being Kathleen honest. Kennedy would have fired his butt so quick, man. <laughs> Back talk, eh? Get out of here. <laughs> I got this idea. You're out of here. Oh. Ideas. We don't need any of those. <laughs> so let's, oh go ahead i was just gonna say it's amazing as 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 i've read through a little bit and and you know watch the sh- watch the movie as well in preparation for tonight's um uh discussion is that you know kathleen kennedy was a producer on this and that she was uh you know hands-on with like pre-production and uh you know even the design you know working with um uh carlo uh rimbaldi with regard to just the design of et uh that she went to the the jules stein eye institute to study real eyes and glasses to because she felt like it was really important that et you know um connect with the audience through through his eyes mm-hmm. it just i didn't know yeah. she'd been around that long mm-hmm. so yeah she worked with spielberg a lot back in that time frame and uh, that's right. where she built that relationship with Lucas too, and that's why he handed over Lucasfilm pretty much to her to run. Yep. Right, the city. <laughs> so let's talk about our cast. We got these the, these kids, right? And so watching the benefit of watching this now is you can see for sure, like reinforces where other shows like Stranger Things get their ideas from yeah because the entire time i was watching it's like man they just stole this entire like all these kids they were all from this movie right exactly exactly i mean a lot of there's it shares a lot with stranger things obviously but what do you guys think of uh of the characters the cast that we have here these kids go ahead spencer okay (laughs) yeah i was was gonna say the same thing uh for me I thought that the child actors that were cast uh, were probably as close to perfect for this type of movie as you could want. I mean, Steven Spielberg had a, had a strong idea of like the type of children he wanted in each character. Like he wanted Elliot to be someone who was going to be adventurous, uh, someone who's going to be loyal, um, someone who is going to be open to the world around him. And I thought that Henry Thomas, the boy that was cast to be Elliot, seemed to fit that role perfectly. Um, Drew Barrymore as Gertie, like he he wanted 
just a, a little small, like innocent child that was like wide eyed by the world around her that just had a youthful innocence that just, you know, was going to like basically lap up and latch on to anything that happened with her older brothers, because that's what little kids do. Mm-hmm. And like, that is the impression that you get from the young Drew Barrymore in that film. And I just, I really thought that the casting of the kids was probably the most important thing that had to be done in this movie. Cause you could have the alien not look that great, but it's the reaction and the acting that the kids are going to play in re in response to that alien. That's going to sell the believability of the film mm-hmm. and the believability of the, the story. And I thought they did a great job. Yeah. I, I, I tend to agree. I, I, um, I found it interesting, as, as like I said, I read some articles on it, that they actually tried as best they could in the process of filming the movie to do everything sequentially so that they could really, um, I guess... I guess, uh, leverage the the real emotions and feelings of the child actors. You know, right. it, it, I think it's different than when, you know, you're working with Marlon Brando or some, you know, some Dustin Hoff, some method actor that, that um, you know, these are children and their their emotions are, are still fairly, you know, they wear them on the sleeve and stuff. And so, um, but, you know, in, in watching it again, I, I was immediately sucked in. Uh, it's funny, Spencer, that you mentioned, you know, the, the innocence of Drew Barrymore. I think at that time, you know, she had already gone through, you know, rehab twice or whatnot. But anyway, but yeah, I'm sure it was very, very innocent. Um, and it's interesting as well that that um, uh, Henry Thomas, who, of course, plays Elliot, uh, he has been ranked um, as like one of the hundred, you know, Greatest Child Stars. Uh, I, I read in 2005 that he was the number fourth uh, 50 cutest child stars as grown up, and and that he's actually had a fairly prolific, as has Drew Barrymore, as we all know, uh, uh, film career. Though I don't think I've noticed that he's been in. He's been in Fire in the Sky back in '90, whatever that was. Uh, Legends of the Fall. He was most recently in Gangs of New York with Martin Scorsese you know, at, at the helm. Um, had no idea that he was still doing movies, but he's he's still been out there and and been working. Um, and I think he even has a, has a film currently in process. So anyway, but, uh, to answer your original question, Nathan, I think, uh, yeah, the, the, the children in this, in this, uh, film, uh, were key to, to its credibility and believability is not just another kind of a washed up Disney movie, but really made it something special. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, th- this casting was, you know, pitch perfect in a way. And you look at Elliot and he had to nail that. I role. see what you did there, by the way. <laughs> You, tr- you try to slide uh, that Drew Barrymore reference in. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was hoping that would go by. Anyway, <laughs> these these kids were essential. Elliot especially was essential in selling the that ET was alive. That yeah, you know that 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 thing that he was acting against was a living, breathing thing. And you know because of his reactions, because of. You know, Drew Barrymore's to some extent too, and and also his older brother to a very lesser extent. Um, you definitely get that. So, but Elliot, obviously, the key. Let for a second, let's look at the adults in this movie. Okay, D. Wallace, the mom who plays a I can't remember her character name is like Mary maybe or something. I don't think they I, ever I don't, mentioned her name. I think they used it once. Yeah, Drew Barrymore's character called her Mary. Right. Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm trying to remember because I watched it just the other day. Um, but she, she for me, um, the she played the perfect. I think kind of like single mom who's 
you know, just recently gone through a divorce and trying to like hold everything together for her family. And it's just coming apart at the edges, mm-hmm. but is trying for all she has to hold things together for the kids and to try to keep their kids having a, as best they can, a, you know, a, a typical childhood. And I didn't get that when I was, when I was a child and I watched that film, I just kind of got the impression that, you know, the mom was just angry or upset. Um, cause I didn't really understand that. And now as being an adult who's gone through a divorce myself and knowing like the actual emotional turmoil that she's portraying, I had a different, a different take on it and a much greater level of respect for, for her level of, of acting in that movie, because I get that she's going through a lot of pain and, and she's trying to hold things together. And then at the same time, her children are going through this just fantastic adventure. And through this, like it helps, it helps her kind of overcome some of the things maybe, or help get past some of the things that are maybe holding her back personally mm-hmm. um, at the end of the film. Yeah. She, as I'm trying to think back to when I was watching this as a kid and I never really, I just kind of thought of her as a mom. I never really saw like the whole underlying divorce subplot right. that there was there. But now obviously watching it back as, you know, being in uh, an adult myself, I guess, that's what they say right. on paper. Um, <laughs> I'm able to kind of see those nuances, those subtleties that as a kid you don't necessarily pick up on. Like you said, you're focusing more on the kids because that's who you're relating with. Right. And you're watching what E.T.'s doing or how the mom's moving around the kitchen and ha-ha, E.T.'s not – she can't see him. Um, right. But, yeah, it's 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 a good thing to point out is like that that level of acting is – could be unsung, right? could be unnoticed by, by the kids who this is made for. But it's definitely picked up on by the adults who watch it. So very well cast and good piece of acting for her. Anything Absolutely. to add, Steve? Uh, no, I, I was just going to say, you know, just speaking of, of of the kind of unsung heroes of a of a um, adolescent. Uh, focused cast. Um, just comparing this to Stranger Things, which is my favorite thing to talk about, uh, in Winona Ryder's uh, role in in Stranger Things. You know, while obviously she is not the focus, um, what a phenomenal um, supporting cast member she became in that, just as Dee Wallace did in this. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's a really good analog. Her character. You know, yeah. when you look at Winona Ryder's character to D. W- D. Williams, D. Wallace. D. D. Wallace. D. Wallace. D. Wallace. D's character. D. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, those are. You got a first name basis. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, again, looking at Stranger Things, and you have this same kind of mentality going on because there's that same duality happening there, too, with, with Winona's character, from what I remember, either being separated or going through a divorce or something similar, right? Yep. Right. And then just trying to hold it all together mm-hmm. and, and her, her kids are going through something, you know, uh, may, maybe less fantastical and more terrifying, but, mm-hmm. but still going through something that, that she doesn't fully understand and, and uh, trying to grasp with and then finally coming to a realization. I mean, there, I think, as you, as you mentioned, Nathan, there are a lot of, of parallel tracks here on, on these two stories and uh, probably for good measure. I mean, if, if, if I'm the, uh, 
you know, if I'm the producer of Stranger Things, I, I, you know, uh, E.T.'s done okay over the years. Mm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. not, not, a bad, not a bad thing to emulate. <laughs> Maybe before we get off the casting, something I want to mention that I've noticed uh, as I rewatch this is that while this movie you would consider a family movie, right? Um, and it focuses on child actors, basically uh, the entire movie. It never feels like a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. And I, and what I mean by that is like it never it doesn't seem to go for like cheap jokes and like little I don't know like little nods to like the I don't even know how to put this you know when you're talking to to a young child there's two two types of people that talk to a child there's the type of person that talks to a young child as if that child were an adult and then there's the type that talks to them like they're you know two years old and, you know, uses kind of baby talk and talks down to them. And I feel like this movie, while a, while a family movie and focused on kids, never speaks to the kids like they're children. All the dialogue treats them like they're adults and they're dealing with some very adult themes in this movie. Um, but it's never presented in a way that makes it feel like this is like too grandiose or too big of a story that children couldn't pull off. There's a believability. And I don't find, I don't find that in a lot of movies anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think Spielberg, the way he, the way he directed this, he really got that out of children. Like, even though they're bright eyed and, you know, full of wonder looking at this world around them, he treats them as if they're adults and they have adult type of conversations and, and I really enjoyed that because we don't see that anymore. Mm-hmm. And when you, so when they introduced the, we'll call him the key man, and right. you never saw his face until later on in the film. A lot of the adults were focused, you know, at the hip down, honestly, and right. ET himself about the same size as a kid. So a lot of the focus was in that lower sphere, we'll call it, of of you know that the adolescent. Uh, height range. I think that was an interesting choice too for for him to look at that, and that really kind of probably lends to that storytelling, with the kids being more relatable to that, but as well um, not being alienating for the adult audiences. Yeah, absolutely. You see what I did there? Alienating? Oh, I didn't catch it. Yeah. Oh no. Oh no. I I caught it. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, I'm still blown away by the pitch perfect thing. It's still it's still blowing my mind. <laughs> uh, I'll try to work something else out in there. Um, <laughs> The the key man, so it'll be a happily ever after. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, the key man guy, whatever his name is, he's <laughs> he's representative of you know the established adult, right? The the typical right. the man, right? Exactly the typical man. Capital M. Mm-hmm. And you know, my wife asked me as we were watching this because we watched it together uh, before recording, and she said, "Are are they the bad guys?" And I was, you know, kind of thinking about that, right? And I was like, they're not really the bad guys. They're, they're just, they're doing their job, you know. They're, sure. they're trying to. And from a kid's perspective, you can see, yeah, these these would be cast as the bad guys because they're wanting to take ET away or something or separate them. So they're yeah, the bad stu- guys. Study them and yeah, exactly. Because yeah, yeah. you got that, you got that foreshadowing, yeah. Again right. from. <laughs> the the frog scene they're gonna take him they're gonna dissect him they're gonna do the same kind of thing with et so from that aspect you can see how a kid would view that character as the bad guy but really in this movie looking at it as an adult 
I don't necessarily see them as the bad guys. I see them as, you know, the police or whoever, the government agencies that, that are doing their job, that are trying to protect the people for the most part, uh, and really trying to learn what they can about, you know, E.T. And I don't know. What do you think? Are these guys the bad guys? Uh, I'll let Steve go first. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the, I guess the term bad, you know, what, you know, to your, to your wife's question, um, which by the way, she, she had not seen the movie before. Is that what I'm picking up? Is she, she has not, she had not, you know, it's funny. Cause my wife was like, Top Gun, never seen this, but you know, Star Wars. I'm like, are you a communist? My gosh. <laughs> anyway. Never seen Top Gun uh, either? Oh my gosh. No, I know. Right. Uh, anyway. So, yeah. So I, I think that, uh, that based on, based on the perspective of, of who the, the, the movie was written for, which was the perspective of a child that, yeah, I mean, the, the adults in the movie with, with the exception, I think of the mother that, you know, were, were to be, you know, cast as the bad, you know, is positioned as the, the quote unquote bad guys, the, the, uh, people that were, uh, were looking to enact, uh, what they felt was right. And, and, uh, um, and again, same thing with Stranger Things, you know, the, um, the law enforcement. And, and it's only until later that, you know, the chief of police in Stranger Things becomes actually the good guy. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely see that. And what's what's interesting is we talk about this as not being a child's movie um, or, or a movie for kids, Spencer, is is we talk about, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, is is the scene that even prevents me now. And I and I, they're probably old enough now, and I just haven't gotten around to it, to show my kids this movie because, you know, the, the movie uh, or the the scene in the movie with the tunnels, I mean, that still freaks me out as a, like, 39-year-old man. I'm like, oh, this is getting a little spooky, a little intense. Um, you know, the, the guys in the uh, in the uh, hazmat suits um, uh, towards the later part of the film. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that they are, are definitely uh, uh, coined as that. The real bad guys of the movie are E.T.'s friends that left him behind. They're the <laughs> jerks of this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just looking for some plants. They're botanists. Yeah, and they're like, samples. oh, Hey, we, we, we got scared. Let's leave this slow guy behind and we're out of here. <laughs> Semper Fi, baby. Leave no man behind. Let's go. Uh, you know, to, to answer your question, Nathan, from a child's perspective, when, when I was a child, when I first saw this film, I definitely thought the adults were the bad guys. Um, it was it was clear cut. It was easy to see. Now, as I'm looking at it from an adult, like you were saying, you know, these were governmental types of some sort, some sort of agency. Um, they were probably doing their jobs. You're right. But here's the thing we don't know. And this is the brilliance of of the writing and the directing is that they leave it vague enough to not say what they are. Like if these were like FBI guys or CIA guys or NSA um we don't really know what they are and we really don't know their, their true or ultimate purpose behind what they're doing. We know that they want to get ET to study him and we get that foreshadowing, like you said, with the, with the dissecting of the frogs. Um, but we don't know why, like we don't know if they want to find out if this is a threat and they're going to try to protect humanity or if they're looking to exploit some sort of alien technology so that they can, you know, fight their wars against neighboring countries better. We we don't know. And it's left vague and ambiguous enough that you have to fill in that gap, whether or not you think they're bad, with your maybe preconceived notions of good and bad. 
and whether or not these type of people have our ulterior motives or not. And I really enjoy that because it leaves it very open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when they shut the door, it was just a like government agent or something like that. So yeah. it was that ambiguous Acme. Yeah, Acme. <laughs> <Right>. Federal Acme. <laughs> um so let's let's move ahead into the story a little bit now. And first off, this story moves for as it's only a couple hour long movie, which was yep. kind of the standard back then. And it moves pretty quickly at the start. Like the only part that when we watched it together tonight that I paused it at to to I was like, okay, this is a good like kind of a slowed down part or a, a transitional part. Uh, to me was after E.T. was already in Elliot's house and Elliot's going to school, that day when he leaves for school. That's right. like the first pause moment, I would say, the first even inkling of a slowdown or a transition. Because uh, this movie, and at that point, it was like 40-some minutes in. And it moves at a great pace. It, it keeps your attention, and you, you want to, you get sucked in really quickly. What did you guys, what do you think of the the pacing of this movie and were you looking at your clock as you were watching steve no um but that's because i haven't seen it in so long and so seeing it again i was just uh i was pulled back in you know i recently watched goonies as well and and for me classic just pulled me right back in so i was i was uh in nostalgia heaven um and no, I, 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 even even at that point, I didn't feel like it was it was necessarily slow. You're right. I mean, it's it's definitely slower than uh, the first forty minutes. But um, but no, I, I felt the pacing was actually, as you bring it up, fairly uh, fairly modern, I guess, in its pacing. Whereas I've seen some other films, uh, for instance, I know Spencer and I talked about uh, Abyss recently, and yeah. I love that movie. And went back and watched. It. I'm like, eh. <laughs> nah, there's some definite slow parts. There's some parts where there's like literally no music. No talking, silence. I'm like that doesn't even happen in movies nowadays. So, uh, no, I felt the pacing was uh, was actually faster, maybe a little ahead of its time. It was faster than uh, than I would have expected for that for that uh, era of movies. Mm-hmm. So I I'm in agreement with Steve's analysis of the pacing and and with yours as well, Nathan. Um, but before I get to that, real quickly though, I love the silences in the abyss because if you were underwater on a rig like that, that's all you're going to have is silence. And then the, the noises around you of, you know, the deck and your feet on the metal deck and stuff like that. Anyway, I, I love that. Uh, for <laughs> me, that's actually a big positive. Um, as far though as the pacing of ET, you are right. You, you do get to that point where Elliot goes off to school and ET's just kind of going around the house and he's getting into all the things. The and rigs. then, yeah. And then it's, it's shortly after that, when the kids come back home that the action kind of picks up again, cause they're trying to, you know, hide ET from the mom and, you know, all this other stuff. Right. Um, but here's the thing though, in this story, the, this, I mean, Elliot finds this alien and he befriends him. And so naturally it's going to be like, okay, well now we're going to settle into like, how do we live with this alien at home? How is the, how is the alien going to adjust? You know, is it going to do the things normal kids do that age? And so, even though that slows down, I think from a storytelling perspective, it still works because you're getting into the, yeah, when you have some big action, you know, event in your life that pushes eventually 
you kind of come down off that adrenaline and it's like, okay, now how do we live in this world in which we've just created or this environment? And let's kind of get into the day-to-day minutia of things. And so I, I really enjoy that moment when you see when you see the E.T. just kind of hanging out at home. So Spence, doesn't it just then become like a sitcom uh, 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 episode of ALF? I'm just kidding. Uh, no. Well, Gordon Shumway there? Hmm? No problem. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. Only because it picks back up again fairly quickly. Right, right, right. So Love it. Love Alf, though. At what point did you guys realize or pick up that there was some sort of bond between Elliot and E.T. that they could share each other's feelings or emotions? Uh, I'm trying to think where in, where in the film, like... See, the problem is because I've seen this movie so many times because I consider there's a few movies I consider to be some of the greatest 80s movies ever. Goonies, Karate Kid, Top Gun, E.T. This falls kind of into this category that I've seen it so many times. It's kind of hard for me to remember like specific emotions, like when when I noticed that there was that emotional connection there. And for me, I think it's. I think it's a little earlier on than probably most people would when they start, you know, having like the shared experience moments. Right. Um, but it's more of when, when they're fir- when he's first, when Elliot's first bringing ET into the house, like you realize that, yes, he's bringing in, you know, an alien, you know, essentially he's bringing in a, a cat from outside, right. You know, he's going to bring it inside and try to domesticate it. Um, but you, you see him like, he actually cares about this alien. And so I think at that time, there's a moment where E.T. just kind of like, just kind of goes along with what's happening because he realizes that it's going to be okay. And I think that's where like, they're laying down very, very gently the the tones for what's going to happen once they kind of share that bond uh, stronger and to a greater degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I would, I would say, you know, as, as they... I mean, I love the classic scene, obviously, as they use the speak and spell, uh, you know, to, to make uh, the device to try to help him, you know, reach back to, to his people. And, and um, you know, uh, I love that scene. And, of course, I think it, it accelerates the, the bond there, obviously, when when they start to notice E.T.'s health, you know, deteriorating and starting to get sick and, and uh, um starting to refer to himself as we when Elliot starts to refer to that. I think that's for yeah. me when it really happens. So Yeah. For me, the first time I watched E. T. like it, was, it had been forever. I didn't really I didn't remember that there was this bond or anything from when I was when I was younger watching it. So honestly when I watched it today for the first time it was like with fresh eyes. And the first time I noticed it was when Elliot was in school and um E. T. was at home drinking beer. Yeah. So, oh yeah, yeah, and, and he has that burp, that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was the first time that I noticed it, and but watching it a second time, it happens even sooner. Like when you said, when he's when he's uh, pulling him into the house, and there is that that time where they get comfortable with each other, and either one of them are is tired, and the other one just kind of starts to feel it. And they both kind mm-hmm. of just fall asleep at the same time. They both get really tired. That's the first time I noticed it this on my second viewing. But I thought it was interesting because it doesn't really say it until later on in the movie when, when E.T. is, you know, 
been not caught, but you know, uh, when the adults have, <laughs> I guess I can call it, when the adults finally come and pick up the toys. Um, so he's under the uh, influence or bond, we'll call it, pretty early on in this movie. And I think that it's actually pretty cool storytelling. They don't just come out and say it. There's a lot of things that don't just come out and say. Like, they don't say E.T.'s a botanist, but you kind of figure it because he's been, you know, with plants the whole time. When he was on that first scene, he was looking at plants. And then he right. had that whole thing with the, the flower. Um, yep. So there, there there's a lot of subtleties that are, are picked up on. In in the storytelling like this, and, you know, you don't see it a lot anymore. So I'll say, just say it in this one. What do you guys think of storytelling that doesn't tell you everything that's going on? Like, they don't... Uh, have an exponential scene where someone's actually like, oh, well, he is a uh, mental uh, link with uh, the boy here. Um, but they go and just kind of show it to you and they, they gently ease you into it. And you're like, oh, I get it. Well, what do you think about that kind of storytelling, Spencer? I think that's the best kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of the idea of like, we don't need to tell you everything. We want to leave some something's ambiguous. We want you to fill in some of these pieces because then it gives everyone a a slightly different experience. And it also lets I think the viewer connect to a film emotionally in a different way. Um, it's less of a story and more of an experience. And I love that with this movie. Yeah, you don't know that he's a botanist. Like, you know, they you know, just have these experiences and, you know, in the end when, you know, E.T.'s, you know, been, his health is declining and then he comes back like the flower and all this stuff, like it's, it's there and you can see it and you can see things that were laid down earlier that, you know, have this like recurring motif and that they come back to and they, they hit upon it, but it's not like the, well, now he just did this and he did this because he has this, a power and this ability. Like we don't really know, what abilities E.T. has. I mean, his finger glows, he touches, and all of a sudden the wound is gone. Mm-hmm. How does he do that? You know, we don't know, but he does it, and it's it's a wonderful moment on film. And I am a huge fan of that type of storytelling. Steve and I, when we talked about the uh, movie Inception, th- there was a lot of that kind of stuff with Christopher Nolan where he leaves things open to interpretation and you kind of put yourself into the equation and that's how you figure out your interpretation of what happened or what something means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think that makes, that makes, uh, that makes a movie interesting when, when the, the audience member can, can think for themselves and everything is not given to them on a, you know, silver platter, the answers to, to all the questions raised by the, you know, by the film, they don't have to be, you know, inception style questions. Does the top, you know, to wobble or, or things like that. But, you know, when we were talking earlier about, you know, directors and about different types of storytelling, you know, I think to a lesser extent and surely, unfortunately not to the caliber of a, of a Steven Spielberg, but you know, I, I love M night Shyamalan movies. I, I love, uh, that, that's still, um, it's definitely, um, trying to emulate that, you know, the Spielberg type of storytelling or that, that era of storytelling, but, uh, but it leaves a lot to, to, to remain questioned. And, and then usually of course, which is his, his, shtick is to to give a big answer at the end but uh 
Um, but it is, it's, it, it definitely draws the audience member in and it makes it more experiential than just sitting watching a, a film as a, as a bystander. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you said, it draws them in and it, it makes it more of that two way street. Like you're almost getting communication in a way that's not expressly there from the filmmaker. And I think that connection is really what makes a good movie that, that you actually have that deeper connection with what's happening on the screen and understanding without being told. Absolutely. So you mentioned it a second ago, um, you know, when, when E.T. died at the end there. And do you think it was just the mad love that Elliot had that he came back, or what was it? So my interpretation of it is like this. You know, earlier they they have that moment where he heals them and he uses some of his aura, ability, magic, alienness, whatever you want to call it. Force. Yeah, the the force. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, I see what you did there. He uses he uses that to to heal Elliot. And so my belief is when he does that, he transfers a part of his being, his consciousness, whatever, into Elliot. And so truly he cannot ET could not die unless Elliot died as well. Because as long as Elliot was still alive, a part of him was going to be alive and he was going to be able to, to come back. That's how I looked at it as an, an adult kind of, you know, where I'm plugging myself into this and what I think, uh, as a child though, when I, when I watched it for the first, you know, time or, you know, a hundred times, uh, I just thought it was, you know, a magical miracle that this thing happened. And I didn't really think about it too much, but as an adult, I look at that and I say, you know, something's going on between that bond between the two, uh, between Elliot and ET. And that's why, that's why ET is not able to, to completely pass away. Makes sense to me. But um, you were mentioned a second ago, not a second ago, it's been a few minutes now, <laughs> that uh, you were freaked out by the scene with with the rolling of the tubes. Absolutely. So Absolutely. To this day. What, that and clouds and sock puppets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what was it about that scene? Uh, was it the when you saw the guys in the spacesuits or what, what was it uh, about that scene that really sticks out to you? Um, I, I think obviously when, when we all saw this movie, we were much younger then. And uh, you know, it's, it's taken this, this sweet uh, juxtaposition of, of, you know, dressing ET up in, in Gertie's playthings and having him with a, a wig and, and uh, kind of this, this very childlike innocence to having this uh, adult-influenced, um, you know, kind of the, the heavy hand of, of authority come down, and 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 of course the, uh, you know, I guess having this bond torn apart between Elliot and, and E.T. when he's taken, and and I don't know, just the entire scene was was uh, very sterile, very very cold, and very jarring uh, compared to the other, you know, earlier portions of of the movie, and. I don't know. I don't know. Cause, cause you know, Marty McFly, when he comes in the, uh, the, the suit and, and pretends like he's Darth Vader with the Vulcan, uh, sign that doesn't scare me, you know, mm-hmm. in back to the future, but this really did. So, and it likely will my kids as well. So we'll hmm. see if they are equally, equally scarred. My brother, Josh always hates 
the moment when E.T. Um, starts changing color, as he calls them, the powdered donut E.T. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, like, I remember as a child, like, it, my brother just hated it so much. And, like, it, I don't know if it disgusted him or disgusted slash scared him that he has not watched this movie since that initial showing that he had that experience with it. He just refuses. He's like, Oh, I'm not watching. He's like, Oh, and he turns into a powdered donut. It's so gross. It's sick. Oh, and it's like, man, it's just, it's just a little bit of flour. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, no, no need to get all weird about it, but um, it's interesting though. Like, cause I hear my brother say that and I hear Steve said, it's like, there are those moments in this movie though, where, they definitely want you to feel something, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. a disgust or a revulsion or, you know, uh, fear, you know, nervousness, uh, you know, being scared. And I think, I think a big part of that is the way it is filmed and, you know, showing adults kind of from like the waist down, but it's also the music that just the, the, the sound editing and the screen and the soundtrack behind it. Just, they, they really have some great moments where, not a lot's being said, but at the same time, a lot is being said. Mm-hmm. And one of those great moments to me, I think, is the probably the most iconic image you can think of when you have E.T., and that's uh, Elliot and E.T. Uh, in front of the moon, suspended yes. on nothing. Right? I mean, it's, it's such an iconic image that Steven Spielberg used that image for his Amblin Entertainment that's company. Right. Mm-hmm. And, like... It's one of those it's one of those moments I think in in movie history that like I don't think that'll ever truly die like it'll always be remembered and be seen and I think there's few of those moments um, but those moments are definitely going to stick with you for a long long time mm-hmm. when you think about iconic images I mean you think about that you, you know other other silhouetted uh, famous images you know you know the uh, uh, jump man you know Michael Jordan symbol I mean. I would say, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say that the the ET image is as well known as as Jumpman, but I would say it's pretty darn up there. I mean, you know, I think people can can relate to it, and and uh, it's it's you know they know exactly what it what it's from, and and it's just become a part of of our culture, pop culture. Mm-hmm. And this this scene, what really makes it stand out, right, is is yeah, you can have a still shot. And you could put that on the poster, and people won't know what that is until they actually go in and watch the movie and then understand that scene and how it works. Because, you know, at that point, E.T. does something fantastic, right? He does something fantastical. There's there's levitation, and now there's, there's this other sense of wonder and element and awe to it. But what gets you there, what really brings that moment alive is that John Williams score and that crescendo yes. and that swell up yeah. into that moment. And, you know... I've heard other podcasts talk about, you know, John Williams and things like that and how he breathes, for instance, the oxygen or the life into Star Wars. And yeah, you think about this movie, too. He does something very similar. Whenever you hear that music, it is it's definitely just giving you that other sense of wonder, that other sense of awe of what's going on and really drawing you in. You know, subconsciously, because, yeah, you're being visually drawn in. But now this music, especially anything John Williams from this era, is just fantastic in the way that it draws a listener, their ears. They kind of get transported completely when that music comes on the scene. But 
Talk to me a little bit about that John Williams score to you and what stands out from E.T. to you guys about this. Let's start with you, Spencer. Uh, let me just say that when I die and if if there's a moment where music is played or like a montage of like a bunch of photos of my life, I want I want John Williams music to be there. I want it to be scored by John Williams and E.T. has some of these amazing themes that the music like it's 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 kind of hard to put into words like it 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 finds a way to like capture the like the innocence of like the children um in in certain parts but then again it also has a way to like really kind of show off like the like the the action right i mean it starts to pick up and you have these modes like where they're doing like the big chase scene right as the big swell and you know up and up into the air and then right in front of the moon um just he john williams captures like this the music is just like dreamlike i mean it just captures this like for me this vision of like you know if you weren't watching the movie and you were just listening to it like this would be like some sort of like surreal dream that you would have and the music would comfort you yet at the same time, like, you know, push the action and you'd want to continue deeper and deeper into that dream and follow it. Um, I don't think this movie would have been nearly as successful uh, that as it was without uh, the score by John Williams. I'd agree with that for sure. <clears throat> what do you think, Steve? Uh, you know, I, I recall a time when, uh, when Spencer and I were, were at school together. So we had gone to, um, to college, we were roommates in college together and he was in a film class and there was an exercise where he was to take, um, you know, 30 seconds, two minutes of film or something like that and, and, and transpose it with some other, uh, another score. And I believe he took the scene from, correct me if I'm wrong, Spencer, but was it uh, return of the Jedi? Empire. It was. Empire. It, was the, it was Empire. Yeah, You're right, was, right, right. It was yeah. the. It was the. It was the. The saber duel between uh, Vader and and Luke in Cloud uh, City. Yep. In Cloud City. That's right. Uh, you know, boxes are flying. You know, he's using the force to throw things around. The window shatters. The wind. And I think you set it to Vivaldi Four Seasons by yep. chance or something like yep. that. And. Um, no, it's Pierre Gint, Pierre Gint Morning. Sorry. Oh, you got it. Yeah. And uh I mean it's just it was it was a it was a funny exercise, of course, but it was it was also very um poignant in that it truly is, you know, what makes the film. I mean, you you you're watching a horror film, you turn off the music, it's not scary anymore. You take the 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 a Williams score out of, you know, any number of iconic films, E.T. being one of them, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ferris Day Off, I mean, Star Wars, I mean, Jaws, any of these, and uh, and they become a, a shell of what they could be. And it's, it's um, there's there's actually a quote by, by John Williams, says, writing a tune is like sculpting. You get four or five notes, you take one out, you move one around, you do it a bit more, and eventually, as the sculptor says, in that rock, there's a statue. We have to go and find it. And, uh, I mean, he is, he is the, he is the master of his, of his craft. And I think is well regarded the world over for it. You know, something else about the music in this, uh, just a little bit of trivia is that Spielberg loved everything that John Williams did. Like John Williams wrote, cause I mean, think about it. He's, 
he's trying to write a piece of music that's going to make this kind of awkward looking alien lovable right that's a big a big get like you got to really be on top of your game to find a way to do that but spielberg loved the the music that was composed by john williams so much that like he actually went and re-edited the final chase scene so it suited the music that John Williams had. So like they, they had these moments and these beats that they fit perfectly together. And I think for a lot of directors, they would just go back to, you know, the, the, the composer and say, I need you to shorten this up, or I need you to, to, you know, pick up the speed here a little bit, or I need you to cut out this section. But Spielberg understood so much the, the influence that John Williams had, like he edited to match the music not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Williams is a fantastic composer. Love oh, Williams. just fantastic. So we, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning with the Academy Awards and things like that. When you look at the Academy Award wins that this movie had, all four wins had to do with the audio. Best original music score for Williams, well-deserved. Uh, yep. Best mm-hmm. visual effects. Oops, sorry. I guess <laughs> best visual effects is not audio, <laughs> but uh, well deserved on that side too. Sound mixing and sound editing. So those three factors for for the audio side of the house. This movie won them I and also won the visual effects. It just goes to show how important the audio is. We talked a lot about the audio in this in this discussion. You know, the score with Williams, the sound mixing with the the key man and things like that, and. It just one thing that I love about movies from the '80s is they have unique audio signatures. We'll call them, and sure. you, man, you just don't get that anymore. It makes me sad. Like as much as I love the Marvel movies, you don't really get much like that. Like the closest thing I could think of to a, a signature, like a sound signature, which is I don't even know if it's in the score, if it's if it was just a, an audio uh, cue that they added was in the Winter Soldier. When every time he was on the screen, there was that little shriek that kind of came on for when uh, Winter Soldier was on the screen right? Uh, in Captain America 2. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a missed thing. And, I, you know, I miss it. I want it back. Directors, yeah. give it to me. So let me ask you this question, because um, we're talking about the awards that won. Do you? Because it was up for Best Picture. Do you know what won Best Picture that year? 1983 best picture i do not know off the top of my head but i will look okay, I, I, do. Can, I can tell you okay. yeah i know okay steve go ahead gandhi yep oh. gandhi won that year and he, here's the cool thing right director of gandhi uh richard attenborough and i i was looking at this because i'm always curious to see like if something's up for best picture if it wins or if it doesn't um what did what did win the cool thing is like richard attenborough uh, who was the director of Gandhi said, and I, and I quote, I was certain that not only would ET win, but that it should win. It was inventive, powerful, wonderful. I make more mundane movies. <laughs> and that was the director of the movie that won when he said that. And so I, I find that very, very telling of like how, how uh, revolutionary this movie was at the time that the contemporaries of Steven Spielberg at the time thought that Spielberg's work was, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. He's well-respected by his peers. 
for sure. Yes, absolutely. And well-respected by his audience. <laughs> uh, right. Absolutely. Right. All right. So we're, we're drawn to a close here, I, I feel. Uh, it's getting late, you know, as, as we record, and I'm already half an hour over what I promised you guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, we're fine. but I wanted to give you an opportunity uh, to give some final thoughts on E.T., so, Spencer, let's let's get your final thoughts. So, my my final thought on on ET the extraterrestrial is this movie a perfect movie? Um, I think it is for for a number of various reasons. Casting in it is excellent. Uh, the acting in it is ex- uh, excellent. The the sound effects, the special effects, the music. Um, all of those things are excellent, excellent, top-notch, probably some of the best you're going to see even to this day. Um, but at the heart of it is the story. And the story, through all these other wonderful things, suck you into this story. And you can appreciate it as an adult or as a child. And it plays on... It can play for both levels. Um, it's probably... For me, it's probably up there. Uh, definitely 80s movies. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the best. But of all time, for me, it's one of the best movies of all time because there's just so many so many different levels and layers on this film that if you were just looking and reading like a, a Wikipedia of like what the plot is, you'd look at it and you'd say, okay, this isn't, uh, you know, this doesn't sound like it's, you know, too crazy and too out there. Um but this is a movie you can sit down and watch with your family. You can you can critique in a film class. Um, you can just dig into it from so many different angles. Uh, it is wonderfully directed. It was wonderfully written. Um, and at the end of the day, like it's a feel good movie. It's not heavy handed. It's not super overt. There's lots of moments where you have to kind of put yourself into it. Um, but it does that all in a beautiful way. I would recommend this movie to anyone that I know. And I can't wait for my boys to get just a little bit older and for the opportunity to sit down and watch that with them. Cause I think this would be something that they would love as well. Well said, sir, Steve. Um, yeah, as, as a film, it's, it's obviously ranked by people much smarter and uh, 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 more uh, deft at, at uh, uh, cinematog- cinematography and, and uh, analyses than I. But um, So as a, as a film, it's phenomenal. But what I thought was really interesting is that this story is really drawn from Spielberg's own life of, of his parents' divorce and Elliot, I believe, is is probably a portrayal of 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 Spielberg and and some of the pain that he had and and uh, through that experience and and I think it's a beautiful thing when a director and a storyteller can you know bring their own life and and their own experiences into into a film and that's what I think is most relatable. I mean, there's a there's a childhood um, aspect. There's a there's a theme of of growing up. We see Elliot go from this uh, innocent boy and 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 his siblings as well, innocent children, to um, loving something, caring for something that is that has come into their life, having these experiences that are well beyond their years, and uh, 
and uh, and and digs deep to the to the heart of of um, kind of the the broaching from from adolescence to to young adulthood, where uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, I guess the, uh, the 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 young flowering I guess is 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 kind of hardened by the world, and I I don't know I I recently and I don't want to get personal, but I recently my my children just lost their 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 hamster, and I know this is a this is a bit of a tangent, but but it was a beautiful thing to see them cry the day that, that their hamster died. And I said, it's a wonderful thing because that meant that you loved this, this thing that you were given. Right. And, and I think the same thing that, um, that we see this, this, uh, experience that Elliot and his, his, uh, siblings and friends have in this movie. Um, I think it is, uh, uh, it is a timeless movie that, uh, um, a coming of age movie that, that children young and old can relate to and, and will stand the test of time for, many generations to come. And I, like Spencer, cannot wait to, uh, to sit down with my kids. And, and I am sure that, uh, um, many of my children, probably the majority will, will shed a tear or two, uh, at the end of this. So. Well, that's another great statement. Thank you for sharing that for me. Man, my, my final thoughts on this movie is, when you look at E.T. himself as the, the character, as the um, anamorphic, whatever you want to term the actual manifestation of E.T., the puppet, it, it takes a certain quality to make you want to draw in to b- believe that that thing is real. Um, we talked about it, you know, with the eyes and things like that, but, you know, it... It made us, it made, you know, my wife and I, when we were watching it, made us laugh. You know, we were, we were drawn in by the characteristics of, uh, of him, like when he would scream, when he would yell, and, you know, just kind of be a little wacky here and there. And it, it just, it draws you in. Um, as, a, as, a, as a character, he's very real. He's represented really well. And as a, that's a testament to the entire film. All the characters are fantastic. They're all well-rounded. They're all really uh, great pieces of this team, of this whole unit that you see in this movie. And, and that's a testament to the direction, that's a testament to the casting, the producing of this movie. This this is, you know, I don't know if any movie is necessarily perfect, but this is as close as you're probably going to get uh, to a perfect movie because some people um, will really see this movie and, you know, latch on to the emotional side of things, just like you know, Elliot and E.T. share that emotional bond, I think that you can get to that point where you maybe even share an emotional bond towards the end as well, when he's leaving. Uh, when he dies, maybe you were sad, maybe you were, um, you know, elated again when he comes back, and then when he leaves, sad again. But at least you know that he's with his people and he's okay. So, as a whole, fantastic movie. I, like the rest, recommend this to anybody who, who wants to watch quality filmmaking. And my son won't be born until December, but once he finally gets of age and can sit for a while to watch a film, I, I am looking forward to showing him E.T., the extraterrestrial. Ah, That's gentlemen. Thank you for leaving the fortress and sojourning over to <laughs> That's Entertaining Shack or... I don't know. What do you want to call it over here? (laughs) (laughs) 
this is no shanty village, Nathan. This is uh, this is a this is a, a, a fine abode well, that you've built for yourself. Maybe the, thank you for inviting that's, us. That's entertaining palace or emporium. Ooh, emporium. <laughs> what is this? Some open market bazaar where chickens? I, I are have from? a purveyor of fine consoles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but again thanks guys uh this has been a, a fun discussion i'm i'm glad you guys could uh come on here as we mentioned in the outset this is something we've been wanting to do for a while um but where can the good folks find you guys so that's uh really easy for me because i feel like i say this every week um you can find us on twitter we're at fort of nerd or you can find us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Ford of Nerd. That's where we talk and we uh, communicate with our super friends. Uh, you can also email us at Ford of Nerd uh, at gmail.com. But then if you're looking for the podcast and you want to give it a listen, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Google. You can find us on Stitcher. Uh, pretty much anywhere podcasts are sold. Awesome. Uh, anything you guys want to plug aside from the podcast? Obviously, go check that out. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, I could plug all sorts of stuff, but it's not mine. So Ginsu <laughs> knives, love them. Nineteen ninety five, yeah. you get a free chamois, fantastic. You know, I, I want that, like that ninja blender. Mm. Oh, Cutco, there, there you go, go. Cutco. <laughs> Very good. No, thank, no thanks. Anyway, for us. yeah, thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great having you guys on here. So for That's Entertaining, you can find us over on Twitter at Entertaining Pod. You can find the website over at That's Entertaining net. Um, wanted to give a shout out to Steve Waldinger, friend of the show. He has his first written article over at that'sentertaining.net. Are we killing our heroes? I'm just going to leave you with that tantalizing title, uh, so you can go take a look there. I did actually. That reminds me. Before I sign off completely, I forgot. I got some people that said stuff about the movie. So give me one second. Okay. Steve Waldinger did did that. Yeah. I can't talk anymore. I'm getting way too late. Stephen Waldinger actually did reply to a tweet about uh, uh, the E.T., his, his memories of it. And he said it was his sister's favorite movie growing up, and she had to watch it every day, every single day of her life. That's kind of cool. Um, wow. Not his, but his sister's. <laughs> wow. And then he follows it up. But when my family went to Universal Studios, guess who is too scared to ride the E.T. ride? <laughs> his sister Vengeance It even names you by name, dang it <laughs> um, And I also had From the Discord channel Over at the Dad's Gaming Network Which is a good area If you want to meet other people uh, That are Maybe maybe dads if you're a dad Hope over there, find them out And he says Tying it back to our Stranger Things uh, Warblade Thinking back to it now, I wonder what parallels there are to Stranger Things. The scenes with the biohazard suits really stand out as looking very similar. While E.T. was released in the early 80s, Stranger Things went retro, and their show was based in the 80s time frame. Both a strange and unique character that interacts and has a connection with a boy that they both have little communication with. Then, they both feature that something that that person likes. Reese's Pieces, Egos... Uh, obviously, as uh, for uh, eleven and yeah. for eleven, yep. And yep. then, then of course, there's all the bike riding and putting the person in a dress, and only to look a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> so there's too many parables here. I know, right? Parallels. So many. 
Uh, thanks again for all the comments there. So, that'll do it for us this week. You can find me, by the way, uh, at on Twitter at... Uh, what am I? Voice by Nathan. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, that'll do it for us this week, ladies and gentlemen. This month. It's just off the rails now. I can't. Yeah. I don't even know what's happening. Um, See, now you're going to go off the podcast, and now the real fun's going to begin. That's right. <laughs> you know, I might go try to do a, a nightfall real quick. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Okay. Anyway, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening, and we hope that you have been entertained. <laughs>